0: Thank you very much, Gary, for teaching us that beautiful hymn. Such rich lyrics. The uh, theology in that great song just seemed to leap right out of the pages of Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 and even into chapter 3 where we find ourselves here this morning. Beloved, in the uh, athletic world, there are many sayings that capture the idea of staying focused. Stay focused. That would be an axiomatic truth really any athletic endeavor, uh, keep your eye on the ball is said in some sports and other activities some people call sport. I'm keeping that vague enough to not get in too much trouble. Take dead aim uh, is another one depending on the sport, depending on what you're looking at. I was thinking about this this week, in particular a story that comes from the athletic endeavor of open water ultramarathon long distance swimming. Uh, In open water, and I'm saying ultra-marathon long-distance swimming, 20 miles plus, there are huge battles that the athlete must face. They must face the ocean currents, wind, waves, uh, the effects of the scorching sun, salt water. Uh, They need to be protected and guarded against ships and sharks, depending upon where they're doing it there's a triple crown of open water long distance swimming. Now, the first leg of that is swimming across the English Channel from England to France or vice versa. The second leg or the second arm of the triple crown is the Catalina Channel, swimming between the mainland of California and Catalina Island. Both of those are in the 20 plus mile range. And then the third is a circumnavigation of the island of Manhattan around 30 miles. There was a super endurance athlete, uh, Florence Chadwick, who shattered the record that had been set by a previous woman in 1950 of swimming the English Channel. And then the same year, Florence Chadwick swam in the other direction, becoming the first woman to swim in both directions and shattering the record in both cases. She next set her eyes on the second lead, which is the Catalina channel and she embarked on the 4th of July 1952 uh, from the shores of Catalina Island to swim to the mainland of California. Now as you can imagine when you're doing long distance swimming you need to know where you are going. One of the great dangers can be to swim in circles and to increase the great length that you're already seeking to do. So she started out she had a couple support boats Uh, the support boats provided her with water and food because it's a very long endeavor they protected her against sharks and ships and other elements as well. But 15 hours into her long journey, she faced a new great obstacle, namely a very thick, heavy, dense fog set in so that neither she nor her boats could see the surrounding land. Now the boats may have had some measure to see where they were going, but you can imagine after 15 hours of battling the element and the fatigue and exhaustion, the kind of effect it had on her mind. So. Janice Chadwick, or excuse me, Florence Chadwick, did what she didn't normally do. She asked the uh, boat to take her in. Her trainer and the people on the boat encouraged her to keep going. She said, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm ready to go in. She went on board. They ministered to her, or they should say they served her, uh, medically gave her food and water, and later on she was aghast when she found out that she was less than a mile from the California shore which uh, for many of us, that might be a pretty long distance to swim, but for her, was nothing. Uh, she did say, and I liked what she said, she said, I'm not making any excuses because I'm the one who quit, but I do. I can tell you that if I had been able to see the land, if I had been able to see my goal, I think I would have completed the course. Beloved, please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And that is a great picture of precisely what God commands you and I through the author of Hebrews in our passage here this morning to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to stay the track, to take dead aim even on the side of eternity of what God's purpose for us is and bringing glory and trusting and following Christ. Now, As we look at the book of Hebrews, even if somebody came to the book of Hebrews and had never read the Old Testament and knew nothing about the law or the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews captures so much of what is necessary, not completely, but at a surface level, at least most of what one would need to know about the law and about the Old Covenant for a New Testament Christian is in the book of Hebrews. However, the original audience, a group of Jewish believers, men and women who were twice blessed. They were Jews and they were Christians, twice blessed. They were Hellenistic Jewish believers. They would have had a huge reservoir of knowledge about the Old Testament, about God's promise to Abraham, about the giving of the law through Moses, about the Old Covenant. And it is to this group of people and to all Christians that the author writes this tremendous book giving clarity and focus and insight about Jesus, about his superiority to all the things of the old and the superiority of all things that are made new and fulfilled in Christ. And the author began the book in the first three verses of chapter 1 by describing the superiority of the Son over the prophets that had come before. And then in chapter 1, verse 4, through the end of chapter 2, verse 18, he launched into a long treatise on the superiority of the Son over the angels. Now, as we turn the page to chapter 3, the author is describing the superiority of Jesus to Moses, which, for the original audience, is very important for them to be reassured, to have a word of encouragement and even a word of warning to not go back to that which they had left don't go back to their earthly ritual when they have the heavenly reality awaiting them and they even have the heavenly reality in their lives right here and right now and we also will have at the end of verse six the beginning of the second great warning passage in this wonderful book beloved follow along as i read our passage here this morning hebrews chapter three verses one through six Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, In chapters 1 and 2, we've seen the author bring out the person of the Son. We've seen him bring out the work of the Son. Even back in chapter 1, we see a hint towards the office of the Son as certainly prophet at the beginning and priest and even king as well. And what the author does here in verses 1 through 6 is he gives three comparisons between Jesus and Moses. He compares his office, his work, and his Person, And he does this so that you and I, so the original audience would fix our aim and stay on track with our focus, our attention, our diligent care and scrutiny and affection and devotion and focus on Jesus Christ. First, beloved, in the first two verses, what the author tells us clearly is Jesus is superior in his office to Moses. Now, as we look at these first two verses, what the author is addressing here are two fundamental needs that you and I have. Two fundamental needs that every man, woman, and child has had since Adam sinned in the garden. Namely, we need a word from God and we need a way to God. We need to hear from him and we need to get to him in holiness and not in our sin. We need in a word, revelation from God, and we need reconciliation to God because of our sin, because of our transgression. And beloved, this is where Jesus steps in. Jesus spoke to us from heaven in the most wonderful, full, and complete and final word from God that we saw in chapter one. He speaks to us from heaven and he takes us with himself to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God even now. Now, as we begin chapter 3, we see the word therefore there at the beginning. This is similar to when we turn the page from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, you read the words for this reason. So in both cases, the author is taking what he had written before in chapter 1 leading into chapter 2. Now he's taking what he had written in chapters 1 and 2 into chapter 3. And in particular, this great salvation back in verse 3 of chapter 2, so great a salvation which the Son purchased For us, for his glory, for our eternal joy. That we are his brethren, we are his brothers and sisters. In verse 11, we are the brethren. Verse 12, he himself, the son says, you are my brethren. Verse 17, we are called his brethren. Also in verse 17, he is our sympathetic high priest of this great salvation, interceding to God the Father on our behalf. This is all part of what is the setting and the background behind the author saying, therefore, therefore. And he gives the command, he gives a command, consider Jesus, consider Jesus. But first, before the command, what he does after the therefore, drawing our hearts back to chapter 2, he talks about a holy brotherhood and a heavenly calling. He says, therefore, holy brethren. Now, when we think of brotherhood, we think of calling somebody brother. I used to call, when I was training and fighting, I would call people I fight with, you know, brother. Um, Sometimes my corporate colleagues, I I would say brother. So there can be a martial brotherhood. There can be a corporate brotherhood. There can be an ethnic brotherhood. In fact, In the New Testament, this word brethren in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13, you'll see the word brethren there, where it's being referred to Jewish brothers, uh, ethnically saved Jewish people and unsaved Jewish people. So there can be a generic brotherhood of different sorts, but that's not the brotherhood that he's talking about here. Look at the word before brethren, holy brethren. That's not there as decoration. It's Using this here to let us know he's talking about a spiritual brotherhood, not an ethnic brotherhood. And even that word holy, that is a word of massive importance in any part of Scripture, in any aspect of understanding God as our holy God. Especially when we look at Hebrews where the author is writing to this group of Jewish believers and he is trying to ensure that they stay rooted and eyes fixed on Christ and not get sucked back into some kind of fog from their old sacrificial system that God had saved them out of. The Levitical system that God had put in place for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is now realized and fulfilled in Christ. And for this uh, group, this original audience, they were suffering tremendous persecution and opposition. They were very likely in outside of Jerusalem, so they're very likely in a gentile city where they would have oppression and persecution from gentile pagans and from their unsaved Jewish family members and o- other Jewish people as well. That was part of the pressure that would seek to cause them to drift away from Christ and to go back to what was before. So when he calls them holy brethren, it has a rich meaning and a significance for them. And what he is saying is you are, even here today, most of us aren't twice blessed. Most of us here are blessed to be Gentile believers. We have some people who are twice blessed to be Jewish Believers. But what he's saying here is we are spiritual brothers and sisters. We are holy brothers and sisters. We are soul brothers in Christ. We are part of the family of God. In Christ and for all of God's people, including even here, as we will see, he's talking about the church. But the author here is ju- not just talking about the church, he's even including in part. Old Testament saints, the remnant from Israel, all of God's people, all the family of God. So when he says, holy brethren, he is reminding us, he is encouraging us that you and I are set apart by God the Son for himself. We are made members of his family and we are called to share in his eternal rest. And it answers the question for us, What is it that unites us in Christ? What is it that unites us as part of the universal church of every land, tongue, tribe, and nation? Or even here in our beloved Santan Bible Church local body. What is it that unites us together? It's not our ethnicity. It's not our education. It's not our economics. It is our heavenly calling. And we move from the holy brotherhood to the heavenly calling. Holy brethren, look at the text partakers of a heavenly calling. Of a heavenly calling. Six times in Hebrews we see the word heavenly used Uh, the letter of Paul to Ephesians when I preached through there I said it can be thought of as a heavenly epistle because Paul spends so much time and focus on heavenly things so also Hebrews as the author is pointing towards the superiority and finality of Jesus Christ he has a great vision towards the heavenly things and the heavenly we see here. Is set in cro- contrast to the earthly. We have in Hebrews a heavenly calling right here, a heavenly gift. There's a heavenly sanctuary, a heavenly country, a heavenly city of God, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, all here in Hebrews. Now, understand this too. The word heavenly here is heavenly both in its origin and in its end. It is a heavenly call from heaven down to us, and it is a heavenly call for us to go with Christ up to heaven. So this addresses our fundamental needs of having a word from God and a way to God. It comes from heaven and it takes us to heaven. And it's the same kind of calling the Apostle Paul wrote about when he wrote to the church that gave him such great joy in Philippi. In Philippians 3.14, the Apostle Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, to be sure, there's an element of the future upward call, the future prize that awaits Paul at his future glorification and resurrection. But there's also a present calling of not just the future look towards the heavenly future, but the present look and command of a heavenly manner of life and conduct right here and right now it also even points back to the past call the effectual call where the sovereign gracious merciful god called down from heaven to us and put life where there was no life before so this holy brotherhood we are partakers in a heavenly calling which is a heavenly imitation and an effectual call and This effectual call of God, this heavenly call, is coupled now with a command. And what he says is, consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Don't drift away. And the Greek language, it doesn't come out in the English, but he is giving a a second person address. Literally, it's you consider Jesus. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul, when he was talking about the believing community to which he was was, uh, writing, he used the first person. He said, we and us. This is the first time where he addresses his readers by saying, you. He says, you, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And when you think of those two words, you could understand the whole theme of the sermonic epistle of the book of Hebrews. We could sum it up by saying, consider Jesus. In fact, we could even, in one sense, sum up the entire theme of the entire New Testament, consider Jesus. If you wanted to have a two-word bumper sticker that sums up biblical Christianity, I don't think you can do much better than consider Jesus. Now, just to be clear, that's just an illustration. I'm not endorsing or encouraging any kind of Jesus bumper stickers. But hopefully you get the point. And beloved, understand this. When he says consider Jesus It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's a command. In fact, it's an urgent command. Certainly God would encourage you and I to always be fixing our eyes and our gaze and our attention and our focus on Christ. But the way the author does it here is there's this great sense of urgency. Consider Jesus. And we can ask the question even when we think of the fact that we are part of this holy brotherhood with a heavenly calling how is it that a sinful worm of earth can be a partaker of this heavenly calling because it is as i said before heavenly both in its origin and in its end it is god's answering the question addressing the need we have of a word from god in a way to god and What we see that being fleshed out is now in the two offices of Jesus that we see. Look at the text. The apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, the word apostle, it's a very familiar word to Christians. This is actually the only appearance appearance of the word apostle in the book of Hebrews. And what's even more interesting in some ways is this is the only place in the entire New Testament where Jesus is directly called an apostle. Now to be sure, and and of course an apostle is one who is sent on behalf of another. It's one who is sent to represent one of higher authority with the full authority of the one who sent him. Now to be sure, we know that Jesus referred to himself many times as being sent by the Father. Especially in the Gospel of John. John, for example, 20 verse 21, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And that's just one example of many in the Gospel of John where he talks about he was sent by the Father. But again, this is the only place here in Hebrews 3.1 where he's directly called an apostle. Now, knowing this, we know, of course, that Jesus is much more than merely an apostle. He is, even as the text says here, the apostle. And the apostle is capitalized, at least in my translation. He's the first apostle. He's the great apostle. And as such, all the other apostles flow from him. He's the source of all of them. And even with this great focus and attention, I think that it's very likely this might be why the author of Hebrews, nowhere in this letter does he mention the name of any other apostles. Uh, None of the original 12 apostles, nor the apostle to the Gentile, Uh, to the Gentiles, Paul. We know that the author didn't uh, identify himself as the author. Now, having said this, I love the portions of Scripture. I love preaching through, for example, the epistles, the letters, where in some of the cases at the end of the epistle... Paul or the other writer will give the greetings of say hello to Peter, Paul, and Mary, and this person, that person. And and I, I love those portions of Scripture because I love to do the character analysis and see God's great work in their lives. Now, as wonderful that is, I love the Word of God because here there's such a concentrated, tremendous focus by God through the author on the Son, the incarnate Word of God. And I think that's very likely why The author doesn't mention any of the others because namely, listen up, all of them, the great and mighty Peter, James, John, Paul, they're all eclipsed by the Son. That is what is in the heart of the author. So he is, Jesus is the apostle and high priest. Again, we've already been introduced to Jesus as our sympathetic high priest back in chapter 2, verse 17. And these two offices of apostle and high priest means that Jesus is your testifier and he is your intercessor. In the context of his intercessory work, the 6th century blind church father hervius he was a Briton. That was before Briton became Britain. This is what Hervius said. He said, quote, of Jesus. He's our intercessor and the one who prepares the way for us to the land of the living because he intervenes for us and enables us to pass over the waves of this world and over every calamity to the heavenly fatherland, end quote. Beloved, that is Christ's work as your high priest, as your intercessor. Now, When we think of the two offices that are brought out here by the author, both, in a generic uh, speaking, both an apostle and a high priest were appointed officers representing God. The context here and the comparison we'll get to in a moment is with Moses. Moses was God's appointed apostle to the nation of Israel out of the Exodus. Moses' brother Aaron was God's appointed high priest to the nation. For example, 1 Samuel 12, verse 6, you'll read read the words, It's the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So Moses was God's testifier, delivering the law of God to the nation of Israel. Aaron was God's high priest, the intercessor, representing the people to God. And so, again, you see these two offices going from God down to man and from man back up to God. But the main point here is is that these two men, these two offices, were done by two men imperfectly. But in Christ, they are done perfectly by one man. So, here in verses 1 and 2, as the author is making a comparison, the first comparison with Jesus and Moses, he doesn't in any way explicitly talk about Christ as being superior to Moses. That comes in verses 3 through 4. He doesn't say that explicitly, but implicitly, we understand the great reality behind it. And he compares, he's comparing Jesus to Moses here. Later on, he'll compare Jesus with Aaron in chapter 5, verse 14 and 7-11. Moses fades away. Aaron fades away. Christ Rises on the horizon. Christ appears out of the fog of what might be distracting the original Hebrew audience. As we read and study this, Christ appears out of the fog that would distract you and me. In the prophet Zechariah, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Zechariah writes these words Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, A man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, watch this, thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices, end quote. Now, the two offices the prophet Zechariah were talking about there were priest and king. But what we have in Jesus, in the man Jesus, is apostle and high priest, prophet, priest, and king, all gel together, all fulfilled in Christ. And one other wonderful dimension about the author's uh, style, in the book of Hebrews, more often than not, when you see the word Jesus, the author in the original language has the word Jesus, the name Jesus, at the end of the clause. And that's precisely what he does here in the original Greek of here, Hebrews 3.1. It literally says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. And the author puts Jesus at the end to rivet our attention again on the incarnate Son of God. The focus always Fix your eyes, take dead aim at Christ, stay on track, don't drift away. But he continues, verse 2, describing Jesus. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Now in my translation, both hymns there are capitalized. He, Jesus, was faithful to him, God the Father, who appointed him, Jesus the Son. Trust had been committed him and trust had been discharged by him. That's why he prayed. That's why Jesus prayed in the upper room discourse in his high priestly prayer. John 17:4. Jesus said to God, the father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. We know one of the words, the second to last word of the seven words that Christ cried out from the cross was to tell it is finished. So, the way he talked about it in his high priestly prayer, what he said from the cross was basically in a past tense sense. But back here in Hebrews 3, verse 2, the way it's translated was faithful is not the best translation. It's a present participle. Literally, he is being faithful. Being faithful. The point here, beloved, is this. The way the author communicates to us here in Hebrews 3.2 is that the work that God appointed Jesus to do on his behalf did not terminate when his work on earth was done. He continues to be the faithful intercessor in his high priestly prayer on your behalf. He continues now to prepare a place for you as he promised In John chapter 14, Jesus remains faithful and loving you and building his church and perfecting his people. His work continues. And then this leads into the first comparison at the end of verse 2. And again, what you'll see here is it's not a comparison of contrast. It's a comparison of similarity. He says, just as Moses also was in all his house. So the point here is this: first comparison is a comparison of similarity. The latter two will be comparisons of contrast. But nowhere in these six verses does the author, pastor, preacher compare Jesus with the failures of Moses, and there are plenty. He compares Jesus with the faithfulness of Moses, and he doesn't belittle Jesus in any. Or sorry, he doesn't belittle Moses in any way. Uh, for example, what he's pointing to here would be in the heart of the original Jewish audience is God's word captured in Numbers 12, verse seven about Moses. God said, Numbers 12, seven about Moses, he said, my servant Moses, he's faithful in all my household. That's the source of the quote of the author here. And the point here is this, comparing Jesus to the failures of Moses would be one thing. Comparing Jesus to the faithfulness of Moses is an entirely different thing. You can imagine I might have someone come to me and say, oh, have you heard about uh, John Smith? He's the fastest runner ever. He, you just wouldn't believe how lightning fast he is. And, oh, well, how fast is he? Well, well, he's faster than you. Big deal. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. But, but if he said he's faster than Usain Bolt, Okay, now we're getting somewhere that means something. Beloved, the point here is, even in this comparison of similarity, the author wants us to understand that Jesus is on an entirely different and vastly higher plane than Moses. And he says, as Moses was also in all his house. And the word house is the first of six appearances of the word house in these six verses. It can mean house, it can mean household, or both. It's the family of God is what he's describing here. So the house of God, my house that God said that we just read in Numbers twelve seven, was not the tent of meeting. It was the people of Israel, the family of God. So beloved, Jesus is your testifier. He is your intercessor. He represents God among humans and he represents humans in the presence of God. We know from Hebrews 1 that he's the one in whom God has revealed himself finally and completely. He's the final and complete word. And the man Jesus is the perfect embodiment of obedient humanity, of a perfect man in the presence of God right now. He came down from heaven to speak to us on behalf of God, and he carries us up to heaven to speak to God on your behalf. That is what comes out of this great, vast superiority of Jesus. And then one last word before we move to, it's really a way of application. When you read the words, consider Jesus, the word consider there, it's not like, well, consider which you know, brand of detergent you're going to buy. He's not saying like, well, consider what candidate you're going to vote for. The word consider, it's an intense perception, it's careful scrutiny. Study, examine, reflect upon, discern, think about carefully. Meditate on the man, Jesus. What he is saying here is, beloved brother and sister in Christ, measure all things by Jesus. Jesus. Every other thought that you and I have, spiritual thoughts, and even in an extended fashion, even our secular thoughts should be derivative of considering, thinking on Jesus. Every action we do, spiritual action, even secular action, again extended, should be derivative from your and my consideration of Jesus. That's the weight of his command here. And it's the polar opposite of the dangerous deadly drift that he warned against back in chapter 2 verse 1 beloved fix your eyes on jesus stay on track don't let the fog of life and care and concern cloud your path so jesus is superior in his office secondly he is superior to moses in his work and again the superior superiority in his office was implicit His superiority in his work and his person later is explicit. And Jesus is not merely quantitatively superior to Moses. He is qualitatively superior to Moses by the very nature of his work and by the very nature of his person here in this one in verses three and four simply put the author tells us Jesus is as great and as awesome of a man Moses was and Moses was truly a great man worthy of glory and honor to be sure he had flaws and failures as we all do on this side of glory but he was a great man but Jesus is superior to Moses, simply put, because he created Moses. Because he is Moses' creator, he is Moses' maker. Verse 3, 4, he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. The second comparison, and this is one of contrast. And even when we see glory and honor coupled together here, and the honor comes, continue verse 3, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than his house, this coupling together of glory and honor would draw our minds back to chapter 2 where the author quoted from Psalm 8. In Psalm eight, the original intent of the psalmist in Psalm eight was the dignity and the rule of man as lowercase man as originally created by God, and then the glory and honor continuing on in chapter two of the man, the capital man, the Son Jesus Christ. So this reminds us that this is all draped in the dignity of man, and what he is doing here, what the author is doing, is he's just using a simple axiomatic truth from life that that just as much the builder of the house has more honor than the house. And what he's saying here, when we look at, for example, this beautiful edifice that God blessed us with some two and a half years ago, well, we we could admire this building, but the honor goes to the one who built this building. That is what he is saying here. The building is one thing. You admire the building. You give honor to the builder. And the word build here doesn't just mean the one who constructed it. It means the one who designed it, the one who furnished it, the one who planned for it, the one who architected it. And that is the comparison. We know, drawing this into the broad background, Moses was not the author of the Old Covenant. He was not the author of the law. He was the giver, so God was the originator. He gave it to Moses, and Moses was the giver. Moses was the messenger of the old covenant of the law to the nation of Israel. But Jesus, he was the giver, he was the messenger, and he was the message, and Jesus was the originator of not just the law, but the gospel. That's the contrast that he's bringing out here. You can think, for example, the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments were given by God to Moses, and he gave them to the nation of Israel. But did Moses write the Ten Commandments? No, they were originally written by whom? By God, by the finger of God on the two tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. So Moses was Wonderful. He was to be worthy of glory and honor, but how much more so the son? And even in drawing this contrast here in Hebrews, the author does not minimize the work of Moses. And then verse four, he says, for every house is built by someone. Again, he's just appealing to what is commonly known. We don't look at this beautiful edifice and say, well, this looks like an explosion took place in a junkyard. No, somebody built this. Now, Of course, when the author wrote this, he wasn't suffering from the lie and the nonsense of evolution. But understanding this dynamic, if we look at this building and realize this building had a builder, how much more so one cell in the human body, how much more the entire human body testifies against the utterly unbiblical, unscientific, and utterly illogical lie of evolution. But enough on that. The end of verse 4 Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So, one more time here, the author is subtly, but not so subtly, affirming the absolute deity of Jesus. Jesus is God. And the contrast continues Moses was a faithful part of the house, Jesus created the house, Jesus made the house, Jesus built the house. John chapter 1 verse 3 All things came into being by him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And the author is bringing this out to again clear the fog of the draw and the allure for the original Jewish audience to go back to their ritualistic sacrificial system. What he's saying is why would you hang on to the earthly ritual when you have in your hands right now the heavenly reality you don't need the ritual because the reality is here I had a a corporate meeting this last week I was in San Jose and I had a day-long meeting and I was texting David Lupinetti and about some different things and I asked him a question he said yeah we don't need to talk but I just I wanted to I stepped out of the meeting it was still going I stepped out went down to the lobby you know beautiful building three-story atrium you know waterfall coming down all this and and basically I I wanted to hear my brother and I was talking to David, and when I told him, I, I even sent him a picture of this beautiful lobby. But I said, you know what? This is all going to burn. I just wanted to refresh. Now, to be sure, I, I had some evangelism opportunities. And the ministry in the workplace, those are things that do last. But the danger is we can get drawn and caught by athletic endeavor, corporate endeavor, whatever. Even the good things from the Lord, if they distract us from our fixed attention on Christ, then we need to repent and refocus our attention. And what I told David was, this is all going to burn. And so that was a refreshment for me. Beloved, let us not be focused on the earthly ritual when we have the heavenly reality. So Jesus is superior in his office. He is superior in his work. Finally, he is superior in his person and there's two contrasts in verses five and six Two a contrast in two positions and a contrast in two prepositions and even little things like prepositions can communicate great great truths Jesus is a son over the house as compared to Moses who was a servant in the house verse five the author writes Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. That's Moses being identified as a servant. Now, the word translated as servant here, in most of your English translations, when you come across the word servant throughout the New Testament, more often than not, it will be a translation of the word doulos. And the word servant is, is really not a very good translation of doulos. Doulos more fundamentally should be understood as a slave. As a slave, this word here is the only appearance of this Greek word theropon, and a theropon—the one—it's the one, and it's an only only appearance of that word in the New Testament. This Greek word theropon is used throughout the Septuagint, throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but only here in the New Testament. Now, the point—let your heads swim back to focus here. The point here is a therapon was a willing volunteer. It was one, it was a man or a woman who freely rendered their service joyfully from the beginning. Uh, we know that there was a slave in the Old Testament. We know that a slave, if a slave had a kind master and they had a good relationship, we also know that in biblical times, there was uh, some element of economic aspect, more so than the horrific slavery that we think of in America. But we do know that a slave could become a voluntary bond slave for their master in the Old Testament. But again, this servant here is from the beginning freely, willingly serving their master. And by the way, when I read Numbers 12:7 before, when God says, My servant, Moses, he says, My therapon. Because Moses freely and willingly rendered his service to the Lord. It was an honorable position of dignity under the authority of the one who appointed him. So Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Look at the rest of verse 5. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. So Moses had a ministry and a responsibility to the nation for that time. Even more importantly, he was pointing forward to something greater, to where the shadow would become substance. And Moses himself prophesied and taught. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses said to the nation of Israel, the Lord your God, Yahweh your Elohim, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And he was pointing towards Christ. And that feeds into what the author is writing here. But now look at verse 6 here in Hebrews 3. Here's where the third comparison comes in. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, over his house. Whose house is this that we just read in verses 3 and 4? God's house. Whose house is it here? Jesus house what's the author saying Jesus is God he's again affirming the deity of the son but the point here is as honorable and dignified a position was for Moses as a servant as a theropone there's a vastly different position between the servant and the son the servant even an honored servant is not the heir the son is the heir A a servant could be a slave, could be adopted. Uh, Eleazar, back in Genesis with Abraham, a servant could be adopted and could become an heir. But there is a distinct difference between a servant and a son. Notice also Moses was a faithful servant in the house. Jesus is the son over the house. Moses administered the household as a servant who was part of the household. Jesus rules over the household as the son whom the father The owner of the household has appointed. Moses gets the message in the house. Jesus is the owner of the house. Moses loves God. Jesus is God. And Moses was a servant of God's people. Jesus is Savior of God's people. That is part of what God is reminding you and I as we look at this. 1 Samuel 2, verse 35, and this is nothing new under the sun. 1 Samuel two thirty five, God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what's in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house and the house here the way the author is using this is he's describing certainly the house of god the church he's also describing tying together the house of god and the old covenant the nation of israel the nation of israel the faithful remnant the true israel the israel of god which is the believing israel of galatians chapter 6 the old house and the new house are different to be sure And in one sense, they are the same. There is both continuity and discontinuity, both the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. And we go from there into the second great warning passage that begins here. And we can ask the question as we consider this is what is the evidence of heavenly calling? When we think of how we began with a holy brotherhood and a heavenly calling, what is the evidence that we are part of the holy brotherhood? What is evidence that we are truly partakers of the heavenly calling? And in short, the author answers by saying it is ongoing courage and hope. At the end of verse 6, he says, If if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope until the end. What he's saying here is the continuation in Christian life is the test of reality. He's not saying that we are saved by holding on to our salvation. He's saying that our true salvation is evidenced by our ongoing, to be sure, imperfect on this side of glory, but our ongoing courage or confidence and hope. It's the same kind of language That the author will use in chapter 3, verse 14, where he says we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Or an exhortation the author will give in chapter 10, verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. It's the same kind of language that Jesus gave. Remember when Jesus gave the great illustration of the seed being cast out and going into four different kinds of soils? Three of the soils and the seed represented the word of God. The different soils represented the different hearts of man. And three of the soils were bad soils where they had deceptive professions of faith but they didn't have the true possession of faith. But Jesus said, of the good soil, of the true believing heart, Luke 8, verse 15, the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So that's the same language that Jesus has. So, beloved, again, the question here is not the retention of salvation by the persistence of faith, but possession of salvation Evidenced by the continuation of faith. And we know from what the author of Hebrews would write, we know what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, verse 19, that the one who falls out never belonged in the first place. What the author here is saying is final perseverance reveals who were and who were not true believers, true partakers in the heavenly calling. Jesus said, John 8, verse 31, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And what demonstrates that is this confidence, this courage, this boldness, this open declaration of fealty and allegiance to Christ and hope. And just a quick word on hope. Turn over a couple pages, chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. Look at what the author here says about hope. Hebrews 6, verse 18, By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest Forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And beloved, dear friend, in one sense, becoming a Christian and being a Christian involves exactly the same thing. You become a Christian by hoping in Jesus, you are being a Christian by hoping in Jesus. Do you place all your trust and confidence in Jesus? That makes you a Christian. Do you place all your trust and confidence in Jesus? This keeps you a Christian. This is evidence that you're being kept by God, by the Holy Spirit as a Christian. And beloved, dear friend, we have everything to gain by fixing our eyes on Jesus and staying on track. And we have everything to lose by drifting away, by losing sight of him as the author and perfecter of our faith. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for, again, so great a salvation. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you declared the perfection and the holiness and the wonder and the plan of God most perfectly, finally and completely when you walked here on earth. We praise you and thank you, Lord God, for giving us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, help us to come to know you. Help us to come to know ourselves. Help us to come to know more and more our Savior for your glory, for our joy, for our equipping to love and minister and encourage one another and to bring the good news of forgiveness of sin to a lost and dying world. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray that we sing, that we do all these things. And all your adopted sons and daughters say amen.